0: Apple presents, Meet the Author.
1: From New York Times, GQ, and Bon Appetit, journalist Oliver Strand, and our special guests, Blue Bottle Pastry Chef, Caitlin Freeman, and Blue Bottle Founder and CEO, James Freeman.
0: Um, It seems weird to read from a cookbook. I'm not going to be like, take one cup of flour, Um, but I am going to read about one of my favorite cafes in the world, called uh, Chitai Hato um, for a brief moment. Every time I go to Chitai Hato, I'm filled with an exhausting combination of elation and despondency, elation because I am participating in extraordinary matchless, unnecessary excellence and despondency because although I aspire to produce an experience of such rarefied perfection, I may never be smart enough or hardworking enough to figure out how to do it myself. The first step is to enter. The experience of entering the cafe is ambiguous. Sit or wait to be told to sit. I think the employees tend to assume that Westerners will realize that they are lost or be disappointed to find that they aren't in the right place. So they tend to give Westerners a few moments to figure it out when they seem satisfied that Caitlin and I have indeed decided that we are not in fact lost and that furthermore, this is the cafe, perhaps above all others, in the entire world where we would want to drink coffee, they usually motion for us to sit. There are tables, and there's a long bar that seats twelve. We beg with our eyes to be seated at the bar. On the wall behind the bar are dozens and dozens of delicate mismatched china cups and saucers. It's a bewildering array. Royal Dalton, Wedgwood, Japanese brands, and a wide variety of colors and patterns, some commemorating the wedding of Princess Di or the Beatles' last concert in Tokyo, sizes ranging from 60 to 240 milliliters. We are handed a menu in Japanese, so the best we can do is call out the name of a varietal or a coffee-growing region. Mandaling, Ethiopia, Tanzania. Then we attempt to communicate in a, 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 a style, paper drip, demitasse. Chatai Hato, demitasse-style coffee means nell-drip. And that means coffee filtered through a flannel sack suspended from a wire hoop. There might be prices on the menu, but it's better not to think about them. Coffee here could run upwards of $15. Tokyo is an expensive town, and it's possible to buy a bad cappuccino at a Dutour cafe for the equivalent of $4 or a canned coffee from a vending machine for one. In that, life-changing perfection for $15 is a bargain. And we must have cake. Tokyo is packed with patisseries and cafes that serve cake and coffee to enthusiastic crowds every day around 2 p.m. Shatai Hato is known for its chiffon cake, so we point and hope. Once our order is communicated, the barista takes a long, hard look at us and then turns his back and studies his wall of china cups. His body, body language seems to be saying, which one out of these hundred cups, which cups are precisely correct for these customers at this time and the coffees to be served? it can take a moment At last he settles on the correct cups we all seem to breathe a sigh of relief I'll stop there thank you there actually aren't a lot of books on coffee and
1: this is interesting because if you think about how many books there are on food culture on wine on baking on pastry on chocolate you, know, you shelves and shelves of them or I guess downloads and downloads of them um, but there's not a lot on coffee this is one of the few to really take this topic on. Why did you decide to write a book
0: about coffee? Other than the obvious, which is that you own a coffee roaster. So why did you decide to write a book? Okay, I should say yeah, because I couldn't have written a book on anything else, um, but the short answer is we worked with a very interesting photographer, Clay McLaughlin, who kind of lit a fire under us. He um, was the photographer, he's the big brother of a very good barista we have, in um, San Francisco, and he wanted to take some pictures, and then the pictures turned out great. And then he said, "We should write a book together." Um, the longer answer is that, in the farmers' market, especially, you're you're not in the coffee business; you're in the food business, and you know people are selling beautiful kale and and great empanadas and and, uh, and incredibly beautifully raised meat and. So I, I had felt like there's this absence of a food book for coffee. For people that just like coffee, they're not scientists or coffee geeks. They just, they like food, they have a lot of cookbooks on their shelves and they're starting to get more and more interested about coffee and they'd like to learn a little bit more about it. And so I, I, f- I felt like the, the farmer's market gave us this perspective of placing coffee in a context that perhaps other Um, ways of starting a coffee business wouldn't have.
1: And and when you're writing about coffee, how do you write about it? Um, Are you writing about the history? Are you writing about what your company does? Are you writing about recipes? One of the issues if you're writing about coffee, because there is an absence of literature out there, an absence of work, you almost don't know where to begin. Whereas if you're a chef at a restaurant, you don't have to talk about the history of food in order to write about what you're doing at your restaurant. You kind of start with your restaurant. But with coffee, you almost kind of have
0: to start at the beginning, you know. And we did. Um, It took us actually, after we we signed our book contract, it took us a while to figure out what the book should be about. Um, And we came upon the structure of grow, roast, drink, and then with recipes. And so once we had that structure, those three words, it was very easy to start a conversation about those three things, those three important things. Give a little bit of history, some background, all in a way that reads like somebody interesting talking to you and and not being lectured at, and have it be as personal and intimate as I could manage to do it, um, and not sound like a textbook
1: is the book for people who are interested in the topic and don't know a lot about it? Or is it for you know, the coffee geeks? Because there's kind of a fanatical, devoted uh, population out there um,
0: that seems to know everything about coffee. If they know everything about coffee, then they do not need this book. Uh, no, it's for the interested enthusiast. Maybe you know a little bit about coffee. Maybe you started going to a cafe that you think is really good and you're curious. It's for somebody that buys cookbooks and maybe has a food magazine or two subscription or downloads cookbooks um, and uh, wants to get to know coffee a little better.
1: And, and so you've, uh, in writing this book, you've, you've taken a lot of information and you've, you've uh, put it in one place, basically, yes. um, which is interesting because there is a lot of information out there on coffee, but it tends to be scattered around the internet. Uh, a lot of blog posts, those are no longer so cool, there's a lot of Twitter activity, there's a lot of Tumblr-ing, and it's 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 an interesting world because it's so new media.
0: And I don't know. Oh, that's, yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it is most of the information about coffee exists online in the sense that, in a different sense than a lot of other foods or or pursuits do. And, and, but one of the, I think one of the things that the threads that unites a lot of the online discussion about coffee is this, this idea of certainty and correctness. And I wanted to write a book that was, very much my opinion and what I thought and believed and very much not about what I think is right or wrong, but what I think is good or delicious. Yeah, on the internet there's a lot of I'm more right than you are. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But you have an an online presence, you tweet. Yes, I do. Yeah? I do. Do you tumble? I do not, I had to draw the line somewhere. I joined Facebook a couple years ago so I could see what my wife was doing on Facebook. And then Twitter seemed kind of good-natured and innocuous. Um, and for the most part, I think that's true. And then Tumblr, I just have to like, leave that in the hands of the experts.
1: And, and by your wife, you mean the person sitting to your right and yes, my left? Yes,
0: my lovely wife slash co-author and pastry chef, Caitlin Freeman. Right, so
1: that's good that you have a mediated relationship, that you have to uh, you know, post everything on Facebook to get it <laughs> across the table. Um, well, in keeping with this, you, when, when you were writing this book, I guess, two years ago, a year and a half ago, we yeah. once had a conversation about this, or maybe you just sent me a, an email and said, I'm writing this book, and you told me that you actually wrote the whole thing on your iPad. I did. I, I wrote almost all the text on the iPad. Using the screen keys. Yes. Which I little... think is is either heroic or
0: misguided. Yeah, idiotic. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I like, I mean, I'm not very good at typing. I still, it's like, where's the L? Um, So I, I like the tactile nature of the iPad keyboard. I like the little thump, thump, thump sounds that it makes. And I like that it makes it, I mean, can be easily distracted. And when you're typing on a computer, there's a browser and and it's, you know, maybe Caitlin put something on Facebook. I should check that. You know. um, so this, you actually have to press a button and get out of the program you're working on and get in. So it's just one more restraint. It, it keeps, it's just one more hurdle to jump over before you allow yourself to be distracted. And I like that. It saves you from yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so
1: in looking at this book, uh, I, I appreciate that you um, make it accessible to a wider audience, but you also address these issues that are, are very topical uh, in the coffee industry. We can call it the cutting edge of the coffee industry, the progressive side of the coffee industry, the coffee kids. Um, one is this little sidebar here where you say talking about acidity. I think that's interesting. And actually, could I ask you to read that? I have it marked here. Yes, I'll read it. In the book. I'll read a hard copy. So in talking about acidity, I think that this is interesting because this is addressing a topic that is um, uh, very present right now online uh, with small roasters, with independent roasters, with coffee buyers. So it's a conversation that is uh, cutting edge, which I think makes this book fairly prescient because you wrote this a year ago.
0: More or less, yeah. Great, talking about acidity, the word acidity is a wedge that can separate coffee professionals from their customers. As coffee professionals, we need to use this word a lot, but we try to use it internally, we meaning blue bottle in this case. When customers hear use that word, it's typically as a pejorative. They hear acidity and think, Ah, my tummy hurts. They think about sharp, unpleasant flavors that actually aren't directly related to the pH level of the coffee. Rather, they're related to compounds that develop as a result of poor brewing, holding coffee for a long time, or careless roasting and poor quality green coffee. At Blue Bottle, when we speak to customers about acidity, we try to use words like bright, snappy, or lively. Technically, when coffee professionals use the word acidity, we aren't talking about the pH level, but the presence of particular acids that are the same as those in lemons, berries, vinegars, and other lively foods. All of that said, coffee professionals generally revere these compounds more than most of our customers do, so we have to be careful that we don't let acidity become the primary driver in our decision to buy a coffee. So I I hope that the audience and the the
1: podcast world out there I was able to catch a little bit of that. But it's, it's an interesting topic because there's good acid and there's bad acid basically yeah. in coffee. Um, and that when people talk about acidity in coffee, oftentimes from the point of view of the consumer, they're talking about this bad acid, this kind of unpleasantness. But within the coffee industry, there's a good acid that you actually want to cultivate, you want to bring up yes. in terms of the flavor. And what you're pointing out here, which I think is really interesting, is that that's almost a conversation that the coffee industry can't have with its customers. Not if we use
0: that word, especially if we use that word.
1: Right. Yeah. So when you're talking to your, your head of QC or your roaster or your baristas, you might say, that's, a, that's some really great acid, and that's not a conversation you could have with a, the no, customer, no probably I mean, not.
0: Yeah, unless we knew the customer well and we were on the same page, and and it was a sort of a regular that we had an ongoing conversation with, we that would not be a fruitful conversation. Right, that's some really good acid. Well,
1: yeah. taken <laughs> out of context, I yes. guess that that can be a different conversation. So I, I I appreciate that this book addresses these larger issues and makes them accessible, um, and I also appreciate that this book uh, kind of tackles some large topics. I'm going to you another thing to read because okay you know this is your book uh in your voice it should be read right in your voice so th- this is a section called uh a special place in hell <laughs> colon pod coffee um and and it's a v- nice little statement here if you could go and pick up i think here so the th- third
0: paragraph there a special place in hell pod coffee and it, as I mentioned before, I've tried not to be judgmental in the writing of this book. I want to create a sort of a place where people can learn and, and feel like they're not being disapproved of. But I do draw the line at um, pod coffee. I'm fine with being judgmental and even scornful about pod coffee. Um, and so. Pod coffee brands like K-Cup and Nespresso have appropriated the language and symbolism of exclusivity without any corresponding craft or deliciousness. Each K-Cup pod contains about 8 grams of coffee and Nespresso capsules have about 5.5 grams. Using 8 grams of coffee for a 355 milliliter serving translates to a brewing ratio of 44 to 1. Um, which is astonishingly wide. That's not very much coffee. Well,
1: What, what would be a, a nice... What's your sweet spot for a brewing ratio?
0: Anywhere from 10 to 1 to 17 to 1. All right, so this is 2 to 3 to 4 times... Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> um, at an extraction time of less than 60 seconds and a brewing temperature and pouring pattern that is entirely out of your control and the decisive, emphatic result to pod brewing is this... Deliciousness is impossible. Some people argue that K-cups are less wasteful than brewing a pot of coffee because you only make what you'll drink. But for every one pound of coffee purchased, approximately 83 aluminum Nespresso capsules, or 57 plastic K-cup capsules, are wasted. Each empty capsule weighs approximately two-thirds the weight of the coffee, creating about 10 ounces of waste for every one pound of coffee brewed. Contrast that with buying coffee from a responsible roaster who packs it in recyclable or compostable packaging and who often pays significant premiums above the commodity level prices that the pod manufacturers usually pay. The seduction of pod coffee then centers around convenience, lack of mess, and the manufacturing of desire by creating beautiful boutiques in which to enjoy the terrible pod coffee or beautiful advertisements to make us wish we were in the beautiful boutiques enjoying the terrible pod coffee. The manufacturers of pod coffee are telling us, in effect, something we know not to be true, that you can have something great without working for it, that craft can come at the push of a button, and that a shiny piece of plastic on the countertop is an adequate replacement for the experience of gathering with friends over handcrafted coffee at a good cafe. Okay. <laughs> yes. There you go. Take that, Nespresso.
1: Oh, I, I, I enjoy this, and, and so it makes me wonder... Um, what do you want for the takeaway to be from a book like this? What do you want for a person who buys this book to do with this information? How would you have them make coffee? How would you have them approach this? Just a
0: few simple things. Buy a good grinder. Uh-huh. Buy, buy a good grinder. It's a, just one thing. Buy a good grinder. Make coffee manually. You don't need anything that plugs in other than a grinder. You don't actually have to have a plug-in grinder. Um, take a little extra time. That's it. So, oh, make go, it? But, sorry, go to some place where you know where the coffee is roasted and when it's roasted. Okay, all right.
1: So, take your time and do less with it? Yes. All right, It's nice. Um, now, half of this book uh, and most of the recipes are, are from Caitlin, um, who is the, the pastry chef at Blue Bottle. Yeah? Correct. <laughs> Um, the pastries are, are really extraordinary, and, and if you haven't been to any of the blue bottles here, um, in my opinion, they're as much of a draw as, as the coffee. Uh, they're, they're interesting, they're very engaging, um, and they all have a little twist. Uh, and I, I want you to talk a little bit about the savory pastries that you do, because I think that that's interesting. You have a whole um, section here on salt, uh, you know, salt into sweet, which is something that a lot of people are doing, but that you've been doing for quite a while. Um, And then you also have a recipe here for one of my favorite items at Blue Bottle, which is the fennel Parmesan shortbread. So it's a cookie with cheese and seeds in it.
2: So I I am uh, mostly comfortable making sweets. I like (laughs) sugar, butter, and flour. and it's a constant tension around our shops that we only serve cookies and cakes, and, and, and people do often want something else uh, with their coffee than, than sweets. Um, and so this, this particular <clears throat> recipe was my way of trying to, to make a cookie savory, mm-hmm. um, still being in my comfort zone, but um, reducing uh-huh. the sugar a little bit and adding some savory ingredients. Um, initially, it was just a way we had a, a wheel of Parmesan that we needed to get rid of from some other project that wasn't going so well. Um, it was what, a... What project was that? It was, <laughs> Why would you have a it wheel? It was a lovely brioche that my good friend, Nicole Krasinski, um, uh-huh. Had made for us. I'm not. I'm not a very comfortable bread baker, but I did really want a brioche for okay. our shops, uh, and the production was really challenging. It required a, a 2 a.m. start time, um, and ultimately we didn't sell enough to make it worth it. It was. It was a real strain on my bakers, and mm-hmm. I was losing staff because of the hours and. So we decided to pull it, but I had all of this Parmesan left and all these fennel seeds left. So um, we have this uh, rosemary uh, olive oil shortbread that we make in the shops. And I thought, okay, well, you know, let me see if I can, I can use up some Parmesan cheese in this. Uh, it was only supposed to be a temporary item, but it, it seemed to work, and it seemed to somewhat satisfy people who wanted something kind of savory. Um, I mean, it's still a battle we face, and it's, th- there's still... Um, Plenty of thinking I need to be doing about how to how to make people happy with savory food, but this was a nice way for someone who wanted something. You know, often people this is the first thing they're eating and drinking in the morning, and mm-hmm. um, so I, I know that people don't always want to eat a chocolate chip cookie. Yeah, yeah. at yeah. 7 a.m. Yeah,
1: they want a little bit of a bite. Um, w- one of the things that that impresses me about uh, Blue Bottle is the care that, that goes into all the pastries, um, especially in New York. A lot of the coffee shops kind of uh, soft pedal on that or check out on that. Um, what do you call it, James? The, oh, the, the, the PBM, the perfunctory brand muffin. The PBM. That was, but there was another one that was like a museum. Oh, the I, I forget. I think, yeah. The Cupcake Museum or the Muffin Museum or something like that. Yeah, where they're all wrapped in plastic and delivered in plastic and sold in plastic. Um, And at Blue Bottle, there's a great deal of care and consideration that is given to absolutely everything. And um, you almost overachieve. Like you don't actually, it doesn't need to be that good. What drives that? Why Why do you put so much into that when you could
0: have a bagel wrapped in plastic and sell it? Could I just yeah, do a, yeah. a preface? You've never seen Caitlin sweep the garage. Um, she sweeps the garage much better than she needs to. And um, that's just sort of her way. Yeah, no, you're right, I've never seen Caitlin
1: sweep the garage. It's <laughs> absolutely true. All right. Uh,
2: I, you know, I, I, get, I do have a, a pretty significant work ethic and pride in what I do from Anything to washing the dishes, to sweeping the floor. Um, so I, I I wouldn't do something just partially. And this this working for Well, I mean I I stay engaged and I stay interested in what I do because it's a really good job. You know I'm I'm happy that I get to have this place to express my creativity. But I don't have to run a business, which is often what you have to do when you're you're running a bakery and the margins are really hard. And here I have this great coffee company and I am allowed to kind of do my own little special projects without worrying about payroll and um, income tax and all of these things that um, that I, I don't like dealing with so I can put all of my energy into kind of interesting pastries that are made fresh. And,
1: well, and what about working as a couple? Because the, uh, the baking uh, at the Blue Bottle on Webster Street in Oakland is right next to the roaster. It's all in the same same building is it is it what's it like to work as a married couple
0: in the same enterprise I I love it just because I can appreciate what she does and she can appreciate what I do and and there's not a lot of overlap so um, you know I'm not telling her how to make cookies she's not telling me it's like oh I don't know James I cup that at an 84 you know she's she's not trying to like get in the coffee business but isn't
1: there a little bit of like one will taste what the other one is doing? And go,
0: eh. or mm?
2: no? Everything <laughs> I do, he loves. It's of always course. fantastic. It's always fantastic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I I can't recall like vetoing a product or.
2: No. I mean, we can have really good discussions about you know how it doesn't have to be super personal. It's it's really about commerce and we're, I you know I'm just trying to sell make baked goods that are gonna sell. Um.
0: But I'm not saying, oh, you know, this that sort of saffron is too weird. You need to make a snickerdoodle with um, cinnamon, so it doesn't alienate people. You know, every month or so, we'll get like a, a few like fiery emails or Facebook messages about how our snickerdoodle is just flawed um, because it has saffron. And because of the in. saffron, yeah. yeah. And so I think you know we we have a very complementary aesthetic. I'm I'm not I comfortable being oblique, and, and, you know, and that's where Caitlin does such a lovely job with the the pastries. You know, she has a ginger cookie with only ginger, and not, you know, cinnamon and nutmeg and cloves, but she does put black cardamom in it, and it's delicious, but it's unexpected, but it's not heavy-handed. You know, all of these things that I really admire, she can embody in her pastry aesthetic, so there is a lot of me just sort of standing back in admiration, I have to say.
2: But I also know my place. I know that this is Blue Bottle Coffee Company, not Blue Bottle Cookie Company, and and it's my job just to make something that complements the coffee. And I'm not trying to razzle dazzle and take away all of the spotlight when I know people are there for coffee, and I need to do I need to make something that supports the coffee, and it just it will hopefully be something that somebody buys mm-hmm. along with their their coffee. I, rarely has anyone ever come in just for pastries. Well, t-
1: to give you a little more credit, there's a fair amount of razzle-dazzle. Like, um, I forget when it started, but a few years ago, uh, because of uh, the Blue Bottle at SF MoMA, um, you started a, a series, I'll call it a series, of pastries that were inspired by Uh, art shows that were traveling through the museum so it wasn't always the permanent collection is that right
2: it's a combination of anything that's just on view in the museum at at any one time
1: and so you would tour the shows as they were being hung is that right yeah with one of the curators and 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 look at the art and uh, create a pastry that was inspired by
2: yes so there's a little <laughs> razzle-dazzle there. But if we're talking about the desserts in this book, I mean, this is really the blue-bottle craft of right. coffee. These desserts are about complementing coffee. But there I did get to go a little crazy.
1: Right. Well, one that I really liked, there was a Richard Abaddon show, and there was a picture that he has there of a beekeeper. And so you did a... I'm going to forget the name of the cake, but it's a cake, basically. Yeah? It's a parfait. It's the a parfait. Um,
2: Sorry. A white... Ch- uh, it's a pistachio and cardamom... Parfait, which is like a, a frozen dessert, right. um, with a white chocolate um, box around it, and on the white chocolate box, uh, we pulled bees from the Avedon photo, illustrated them so they looked a little more bee-like, um, and turned them into a cocoa transfer, and and, and put them on the box. So, so it's just so a little box with the Avedon bees all yeah, over
1: it. There's a little bit of a razzle-dazzle, but it's a lot of fun. Um, and, and I think, but, but that's in keeping in line with Blue Bottle because of the aesthetic of Blue Bottle is highly developed. Um, it's very personal. I think it's, the pastries are very much a reflection of you and the shops are very much a reflection of you, James. Um, you're into uh, old stereos. You have a lot of that. Uh, you're into uh, old cars. Old French cars. Old French cars. Um,
0: what else? Flowers. Yeah, well, I don't like decorations. Right. But the flower seems to me that's like an acceptable decoration. It doesn't even seem decorative in the same way that like a knick-knack or a collection is. But sort of like a beautiful spare, a few flowers I think are really nice. If you have a lot of stuff all around, I I personally think there's nothing more beautiful than just like an empty shelf or an empty space. And I feel like people come into our shops and maybe relax a little bit and they don't know why, but it's because there's not all this like, you know, mints and books and this and that trying to get their attention. Yeah. So I, I like to keep things uncluttered. Yeah, and, and, and it's a very beautiful,
1: sensual experience. It's, it's more than just a coffee and a cake, we'll say. Um, I think that it's time to open the floor to questions. If there are questions from anybody, we have a microphone that is walking around.
2: Please wait till the microphone gets to you so we can record your question.
0: Hi, I guess I have an unusual question. Um, Where did
1: you both grow up, and were you inspired as children in your homes um, with
0: great coffee and great pastries and things like that, or just the opposite? (laughs) Yes, just the opposite. I grew up in very rural Humboldt County, and one of my formative memories is opening a can of MJB coffee, begging to open it, and that, that gust of of coffee-scented air I thought was so incredible. And I talk about it in the book, then there, that sort of followed a months-long begging campaign of me wanting to try that coffee, because it smells so good, of course it's gonna taste really good. And um, this was made out of percolator. Um, and you know, finally I got to try it, it was horrible. It was really horrible, as you, you might imagine. And, and that, um, that tension, between really loving the smell and, you know, begging to taste it and then, and then the, the horrible sensory experience of the, the taste, I think that tension sort of lodged something more deeply than had I really liked the coffee. It's like, had I said, MJB, great stuff, you know, I think I would have forgotten about coffee sooner.
1: So, so your entire life has been trying to address this childhood disappointment? Yes. Yeah. Yes,
0: mm-hmm. I'm working it out, Oliver. I am trying to work it out.
2: And meanwhile, not making friends in the big coffee industry right now. You're calling out a lot of names. Oh,
0: great. Right. Sorry, Mr. MJB. <laughs>
2: uh, I grew up in a, a very small town in Southern California called Ojai. Uh, it's by Santa Barbara. Um, and no, I mean, I've always had a sweet tooth. I, 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 I have fond memories of uh, maple bars from... a a donut shop in town. and um, But I l- saved my lunch money, and instead of buying lunch, I would buy candy. Um, I would eat the Twinkies out of my best friend's lunchbox because she got both a Twinkie and a ding-dong every day. Um, That's really extravagant. Isn't I mean it? By anybody's standards, Yeah. Actually. Yeah, and so she was happy to give me her Twinkie. Um, and I was... Um, inspired to be a baker not because I loved baking. In fact, I learned how to bake so that I could create cakes that were inspired by a painter um, called Wayne Tebow. He's a California painter. He's still alive, but in the 60s he painted uh, paintings of cakes. Um, And I loved them so much, I was an art student, I was a photography student, um, that I wanted to make that world, and so I needed to learn how to make cakes in order to to have them around me, but I didn't, it wasn't out of a d- great love of baking or, you know, these great inspirations as a childhood. It was really kind of a means to create art.
1: We have a question in the third row. Hey. Hello. Um, just wondering if you guys had any favorite sort of hole-in-the-wall spots here in the city
0: in any of the the boroughs, coffee spots. Yeah, sorry.
2: Oh, that's Oliver's.
0: That yeah gig. I, I think Oliver should start, and then I can think of.
1: Um,
0: I just want to point out that
1: this gentleman's not a plant. Never met him before, uh, but I write <laughs> a uh, app <laughs> um, that is free. It's uh, put out by the New York Times. It's called the Scoop. And there's a coffee map and coffee listing. So if you download that, it has 120 on there. Um, and I change it every month. I I update it every month. So I cut a few, I add a few, I try to keep it fresh.
0: There's a place in Midtown called Culture Espresso, is that what it's called? Yeah, um, 38th, uh, just off of 6th Avenue. And what subway do you, no. um. uh, th- The BDF. 42nd Street. Very good. I remember... EDFM, I've, yeah. When I've been lately, I've, I tend to just go to all our, our own shops because we have more of them than we used to. And I spend a lot of time in our own shops. I really have a desire to, to go out more to other people's shops that um, I used to before when we just had the Brooklyn Roastery. Um, but I remember enjoying my experience at Culture a lot. I think... I mean, I, I, I love trying the coffee. I don't think about things like, oh, that sucks, or this is great. Um, I just, I really like seeing what people have done and sort of what the signs and symbols of their shops are and, and and what I think is interesting or derivative or, you know, what I like kind of untangling the threads of different shops and 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 thinking about them in, in that way. But I, I do remember a, a very delicious espresso I had at um, Culture, few months ago we
1: have another question in the second row here hey there Um, being from San Francisco and now being in New York what are the main differences between the coffee scene and just sort of the way people enjoy coffee and so forth between the two
0: cities that's a I like thinking about questions like that. Um, I think there's, especially in Brooklyn, there are a lot of parallels. I, our Brooklyn shop and just sort of how the customers are and the kids and the dogs and everything. I, I think that could be a, a San Francisco shop. Um, in, I mean, New York is faster. And, and so our Manhattan shop shops in Chelsea and Rockefeller, I, I want to have them easier to read. I feel like people, don't you know? There, I have a little bit of an ambiguity problem in that sometimes our shops, especially our early ones, aren't easy to figure out at first glance. Um, and so I want to try to um, minimize that, or I wanted to try to minimize that. I think most successfully we did that at Rockefeller Center. Um, I, I feel like our Chelsea shop is is very close to me and, and beautiful, there's still a, you know, a few reading issues that we're working out. We have a little Tokyo-style siphon and toast bar upstairs in our Chelsea shop, and there's a, a, a sign that says siphon and toast and a little arrow, and, and people are telling me, oftentimes we'll get a question, like a barista will get a question, what, what is toast? And, and it's not that that person is uninformed, it's just we've done something with the collection of images that make people think that it's not the toast that they're thinking of. So, um, you know, I I think we do need to be, because, you know, it's a metro area of over 8 million people. There are basically 120 places in it that know how to make coffee. Um, There's still this, this, I don't want to use the word education, but there's still this reaching out so people understand that it is a slightly different culture and a slightly different world of coffee than they may be used to. Um, and we need to present it in a way that they can easily grasp and understand.
1: I'll say um, in, in the Bay Area, uh, there are coffee shops that are so beautiful, it's, it's heartbreaking. Uh, the, the, blue bottle, the blue bottle shops are gorgeous. You go to a place like Sightglass, and it's just shocking how, how magnificent that space is. And New York has nothing like that. Um, But what New York does have is this abundance of tiny shops that can do it really well and really quickly. So uh, in uh, Blue Bottle, you have these pastries, you have all this light, you have all this space. It's really, really wonderful. And then um, at shops, not Blue Bottle, I'm I'm not saying Blue Bottle, but um, you also have a lot of lines that just kind of hang out in the Bay Area. Um, In in New York, uh, they just push people through you have a tiny space in the coffee it comes and goes so in New York you have speed and efficiency and competence and in San Francisco I think it's really really beautiful those are you we're,
0: know it's, it's we're it trying to sort of um, harmonize those two things
1: yeah yeah that would be
0: nice actually I would yeah.
1: like a little more beauty in New York and the next time I'm in, I'm in San Francisco I'd like a pick it up little, sunny. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a little higher heart rate
2: <laughs> we've got a question in the second row in the middle
0: Yes, question for James. Uh, Very much in the line of the other question, but a little bigger picture. I've been drinking espresso for years. Nice. And um, I'm glad there's more and more more of a culture of espresso and coffee in general uh, in the the U.S. And my question to you is if you can, uh, with your own words, describe the fundamental difference that there is between uh, a coffee and espresso in San Francisco, for instance, versus uh, the one in Naples. Where we've been drinking espresso for forever, and that is the texture, the foam, uh, the uh, acidity you were talking about. How would mm-hmm. you describe? Because it seems like there is a fundamental difference, just oh, like with wine, uh, you know, French wine and, and California wine, or something. In that in that kind of question, in any way, I think that's a great question because a lot of times people have Italian espresso as their model. That is how it should be. Um, I can't speak unfortunately to um, the espresso in Naples but I have had a lot of espresso in Rome and um, in Florence and Bologna (laughs) oh I haven't lived unfortunately Um, but I mean one of the things I do appreciate about Italian coffee culture in general is the the near universal adequacy that you can get something that tastes pretty good almost everywhere and that is incredible and almost unheard of in the United States. The style of espresso generally is smaller amounts of coffee in Italy. Um, nice shorter pulls. Um, the coffee tends to be aged out. It's a longer period of time after roasting, um, and the mac. You know, you're, you're they're trying to maximize sweetness and texture in a single dose. In The United States. It's hard to generalize, but but I feel like everything is extra in the state. So we pack more coffee in our portafilters in general, slower extraction, make, make the water work a little harder. Um, there's also this thread of very Nordic influences. The coffee cultures of Oslo or, and, and Scandinavia in general um, emphasize very bright, bright fruit, lemony, limey, um, pineapple-y tastes in coffee, um, which can be very upsetting if you're used to a nice toasty Italian espresso so a lot of times um, You know those those two cultures are Are very much at odds with with each other and I think right now in the 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 progressive shops um, there's this this um, borrowing from from uh, Scandinavian coffee cultures rather than trying to emulate the Italian coffee cultures. So if you get, if you go to a, a good shop and you get an espresso that you feel like is super lemony and it's like, ah, oh, what, what's wrong with this? It doesn't taste like I'm used to. It's probably on purpose. And you know, the, I think where that, those threads of taste are coming from is um, a lot more washed coffee and following a more Scandinavian model.
2: We have time for one last question in the front, right in front of you
0: hi hi so I'm from LA and
1: she wa- she was going to school over in uh, the Bay and she was living in Oakland for a while nice um, and she introduced she told me about blue bottle coffee like maybe three years ago uh-huh maybe four years ago and I never actually got to try it. and then we came over
0: to New York and I finally tried it over here nice um, I'm wondering is there a reason why you guys haven't moved over to LA yet well, we get emails about that a lot. I studied um, in New York a long time ago, so I, I've, I love New York. It's it's fun and and exciting. It feels like the center of the universe, and um, it was a little fantasy to open a roastery in New York because if we have a roastery, then I'm going to go to New York. Um, L.A., I feel like I need to spend more time in L.A. with somebody who loves it because I haven't spent... An, The time I've spent in L.A. has not been super enjoyable because of that kind of cliche. It's like, let's go to lunch. And then 90 minutes later in the car, we're eating somewhere at lunch. So I I, I need to learn more about L.A. It's a significant business opportunity that I am neglecting because we get, you know, we have so many customers that are back and forth. We get so many inquiries. Um, So if probably if I were smarter and a better business person, we would have opened a roastery in L.A. prior to opening in New York City
1: I think the, the coffee people tend to open up in places where they kind of want to hang out <laughs> yes you know it's it's that it's that decision it's like yeah I really want to be in Brooklyn I like Brooklyn
0: so you open up in Brooklyn yeah yeah that's about it cool great thanks everybody
2: thank you for coming thank you very yeah. much thank you for coming